Glossonomia, conversations on the sounds of speech. My name is Eric Armstrong, and with me here today is Phil Thompson. Hi there, I am Phil Thompson. I uh, teach voice and speech at the University of California, Irvine. I do a little bit of coaching, and uh, I head the acting program. I do similar things here in Toronto, Canada. I also am a coach for theater and film and television, and I teach at York University. And... uh, I am also the acting area coordinator for the Acting Conservatory. Today we're going to be talking about a consonant sound, or at least a pair of consonant sounds. Um, This time we're focusing on sounds that are usually represented in English by the spelling TH. So those are the sounds TH and TH, so uh, a pair of voiceless and voiced sounds. Uh, But before we do that, we are going to take some comments. Um, We had a listener, Eric Singer, who very generously wrote in to us to make a comment, and I think I will read that comment to get us off. Terrific. Uh, So here's what, this is what Eric said. Just listen to the K-G episode. Good stuff, as always. Hmm. Phil, at one point, I believe you said the phrase, alarming to speak. I think you were making a point about how it's a good thing we don't have more nerve endings in our vocal folds, ending with a beautiful, crisp, clear, velar ejective. I thought that would have been a great moment to talk about ejectives and their occasional allophonic use in English for final pulmonic stop plosives. I know you touched on them before in ta-da, maybe? But it would have been nice to include them in this episode, too. It seems to me you used it to put a certain point on your witty remark, which is certainly one common use. It also seems to me that movie bad guys, when taking a certain <laughs> psychopathic relish in their mischief, will often go for that final ejective. I can remember Heath Ledger doing it more than a few times as the Joker. And, you know, good comments after that. So, uh, uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think uh, he's absolutely right. Uh, I, I find myself now self-obsessed with every little extra explosion. And I think it's important to say that there's, one, a good deal of variety in the execution in the realization of all of these sounds. And, yes, they happen and they're variable for the purposes of communication, absolutely. We did touch on it on in t and d, and we could say it, generally, that any unvoiced plosive has an allophone. We might want to come back and re-explain that. Uh, An allophone, which is an ejective version of that, that would be And we probably, all of us, pepper our speech with it. We Sometimes people are taught to do that, uh, but I think it happens quite naturally as well. I I think the the thing we have to remember is that it's probably almost exclusively going to happen in final positions. Yes, because it's a different... Uh, gesture, a different piece of acrobatics to move from an ejective where you're closing off the vocal folds to phonation. So ah, ah is certainly doable, but it, it's not something we're used to doing in English. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you get a little hiccup if you try to do that. Yeah. Ah, ah. 
Yeah. I mean, there are certainly languages which make distinguishment that they have a p and a p. And so uh, the one I'm remembering now, it's probably from Peter Latifoget's site, is uh, a language which I can't recall in which papas and apas are different words. Mm. Uh, but w we only use it allophonically. So do you want to expound on allophones? What is an allophone? Well, we have to, I, I think we have to review the idea of phoneme yeah. first before we can talk about an allophone. And um, the definition of phoneme that I have always used, and this is my layman's terms version of it, is that a phoneme functions as sort of the thought of a sound, uh, and then we have something called a phone, which is what actually comes out your mouth. Hmm. Uh, and those two things are, are actually very important in talking about speech and sounds because we, we have ideas about sounds. Um, we think thoughts and, and we divide words up phonemically by these chunks, these segments that we, we can differentiate one vowel from another one through a, different, a series of different phone, phonemes. Ultimately, what comes out of our mouth, these different sounds, these different phones, are really dependent upon our regional background, our socioeconomic class, those kinds of things. When we talk about sp um, the dictionary definition or the pronunciation of a word, we're often talking about which phoneme fits in which segment of the word, um, and then different regional versions will have slightly different phones for those different sounds. So However, in an individual, yes, sorry? Uh, so I just uh, wanted to say that uh, another way of thinking about this thought of a sound is it's the category. So mm. there are lots of different variations, but we still know that they fit into this category or that category. So we hear variations on th, but we know it fits in the phonemic category. Uh, we can recognize the, the word or the sound based on whether or not it fits the category, not on its absolutely most specific realization. And uh, this is where the, the variations comes into play, that uh, part, of, part of the nature of spoken language is the interconnection of one segment into the next. And to some degree, particularly in English, we anticipate the thing that comes next. And so our, our mouths are always setting themselves up to make the next sound. So, for instance, if I'm going to say a word like uh, uh, feel versus the word fool, the Fs, the phoneme F that begins both of those, is actually slightly different between fee, feel and fool because oo has a little bit of lip rounding on it, whereas feel has lip spreading, generally. And so the F anticipates that. And on fool, you'll have a slightly rounded F. And on feel, you'll have a slightly spread F as we anticipate that vowel. However, most of us would never notice that there's a difference, an allophonic difference between those two Fs. The only time you notice those kinds of allophonic differences is usually when one region doesn't have that allophonic difference or has a different allophonic difference. So another example of an allophone, uh, the T that we, we've talked about this before, the T in top has aspiration. The T in stop does not have aspiration. Yeah. Most of us don't notice that stop is different from top until someone points it out to us. Because for us, they're phonemically identical. 
they they both work. Exactly. So uh, the the allophone of an ejective in place of pataka works in a certain environment at the end of a phrase, yeah. at the end of the, the syllable, at the end of the phrase, where we need to stop, but we want to highlight that sound. We might, we might normally just stop and not release, so we want to put a P on it, but we don't want to go so far as to actually breathe. <laughs> yes, and I have to say that I, I have some sort of reluctance to advise people to pepper their speech with adjectives, partially because you and I both not only speak, uh, not only teach speech, but we teach voice as well. And uh, one of the things we're probably both of us trying to get out of our students is a certain evenness of flow in their breath management. And mm -hmm. so uh, I think that maybe voice teachers are constitutionally opposed to too much stopping and too much glottal stopping going on. But again, uh, Eric brings up a terrific point. It's certainly possible to do. It doesn't harm us, and it actually provides some interesting and meaningful variation in our speech. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, we, you know, we did it without really noticing, I suspect. <laughs> I suspect. <laughs> and I, I can't imagine... Uh, going through this entire podcast, actually thinking about how I say things. So now I'm a little worried that uh, uh, Eric or others will be listening over my shoulder. I should I should get over that, I guess. It would drive us mad. Yeah. Um, now, at the end of our uh, podcasts, we've been asking people to send in audio comments. And listening to another episode, Eric Singer was inspired to record an audio comment and send it in. So uh, let us have a listen to that right. now. Hey, guys. Eric Singer here. I just wanted to uh, thank you, first of all, for the podcast. I'm really enjoying listening to it. And I just had a thought, a comment um, uh, for you. Eric, in the last episode, in the happy episode, you mentioned uh, your practice of using the barred I to transcribe the vowel in happy, the final vowel in, I guess, your pronunciation of the word happy. And um, you mentioned that you, you don't use it for much else. And uh, Phil sort of mildly said that, uh, you know, he thinks that's a, quite a closed-tongue position. I also think it's more central than what you're doing. Um, and I, I would propose three places that I come across a, a need for it quite frequently. Um, or I should probably say, if not quite frequently, uh, at least from time to time. Um, as a Russian, well, as a former Russian speaker, anyway, I studied it in college. The uh, there's, as I'm sure you probably know, there are uh, five sets of paired vowels in Russian, and they call them hard vowels and soft vowels. Uh, and the soft vowels tend to be palatalized. The hard vowels um, are not, and uh, sort of somewhat more pure monophthongs. And uh, one of them, the hard version of what is e in uh, in a soft version is e, uh, as in the, uh, the Russian which means maybe. Um, and that, I, I think, is um, always stood for me as sort of the absolute uh, stereotypical or perfect example of what that barred I sound represents. certainly feels that way, and I think that's the way it, it tends to be described in, in the various literature that's out there. And then um, the other two places that I, I come across a need for this symbol are in uh, in two diphthongs, in two different accents. In the Australian, uh, you know, kind of a very broad Australian goat vowel uh, is in guy. 
you know, would you like to buy a goat? Uh, I think that, that that target sound is this same kind of barred eye. And then uh, in a Belfast accent, uh, the mouth vowel, mouth, shut your mouth. Uh, I think that's also going to more or less that target sound. And in all three examples, I think that they're um, they're both more close, as Phil said, and also more central than uh, in any happy vowel I've ever heard from an English speaker. So uh, my two cents for what it's worth. But uh, keep up the podcast, guys. Really enjoying them. Thanks so much. Bye. Well, that that was great. Indeed. And I, I don't know if we have much to add to that because I, I agree the, I hadn't really thought about the use of that central but high sound in diphthongs, uh, but mm. that certainly makes a lot of sense. I'd, I'd like to add one, another variation. The nurse vowel sometimes will be realized by some accents is nice, have you heard? Mm. And that seems to me probably another candidate. So it's so sort of an off-glide film? Uh, yeah, nice. yeah, exactly. I'm sure that we'll, in our next episode, get around to talking about how that is realized. But uh, it does seem to me that there's a difference between diphthongs that end in I uh, and those that are more relaxed, more central. central. So as Eric mm-hmm. suggests, heis, uh, that little I sound, or mouth or gout, uh, those seem to be going to a more central place. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Historically, let me get in yeah, there. Please. Historically, of course, those were going more towards ooh, in the, the direction of ooh, and it seems that these are part of a, a pattern that we're seeing, moving that ooh further forward. And yeah. typically, uh, that accents that have these I and uh, I kind of um, forward placements their ooh is creeping forward, too. And we'll, you hear that in parts of, of England, that the ooh sound is getting to be quite ooh sound quality. And there's often very little lip rounding anymore. Um, so the, in the same way that o oh, uh, for goat words has no lip round anymore, um, so too you is lo- losing its lip rounding and we're getting more of a barred eye kind of sound. Yeah, absolutely. In, in fact, Southern California is replete with examples of ooh fronting. Here are you. Dude. Dude, it's a goose. Uh, what's interesting here is there seems to be a, a centralization but not a mid-centralization that we're, mm. we're getting sounds creeping towards the middle but still staying pretty high in tongue position. Absolutely. Uh, it did seem to me that the, this Russian example, and I certainly have seen Russian words transcribed with, with the barred eye, the, the way Eric realized that seemed pretty low in tongue position, definitely central, but not as high as E and U. And I'm interested in that, whether or not there is variety within Russian pronunciation. But if I were to start in the E position and move backwards, E, I've still got my tongue really high up, and that seems different, E, E, E than which I thought is what I heard Eric realizing. So I'd be interested to know, although we certainly could have other people comment on our show, uh, if anybody is a Russian expert to throw in there, uh, or really any comments that you have, it's delightful. And Yes, the, and the audio comment is a great thing. Love to have your voice, Eric. Thank yeah. you. Uh, I have to respond, of course, to my use of the barred eye that at 
no, the sound I make isn't as centralized. That uh, basically I'm using the barred eye more in a kind of phonemic way than in a narrow phonetic way. And uh, I think that is uh, something that I probably will eventually change in my practice of doing narrow phonetic transcription, that I will stop using a barred eye and perhaps <coughs> use a, a mid-centralized uh, diacritic, the little X marks a spot over top. But I have to um, say that you're not alone in using, there's a tradition of using that barred eye. Yes, and so um, it... it it's not unknown, and the, the advantage uh, I find in using it as I'm teaching my students to differentiate between a strong E and a weak E is that they begin to uh, recognize uh, a difference there so that they can anticipate it as they're listening to other dialects, that there might be something unusual going on there, uh, different from what would happen in the lexical set uh, of the fleece words. So um, it I am kind of doing some phonemic teaching in the process of teaching phonetics. And uh, some, sometimes I'm very clear of sort of separating that those two teachings, and in that place I'm clearly kind of doing both at the same yeah. time. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, there, there are many ways to uh, uh, get to heaven, <laughs> and uh, my, my path is just a different one. There are many ways but, to get to uh, heaven as well. So. <laughs> Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I understand your, your argument, um, and you will see, uh, if you look at the transcription uh, of uh, the use of barred eye on Wikipedia, their, their use of, of it um, is not for the happy sound. It's sort of for a weak i sound. Uh, again, probably not a, a phonetically what the IPA had in mind. But uh, it's another example of that barred eye symbol being used in perhaps a slightly different place. Yeah. As long as you're clear about what you're doing with a symbol, basically you can do what you want. Exactly. You just have to set out the rules in advance. So Yeah, that, I think that's a very important point. And something to remind our students about, that phonetics is not the alphabet of God. It's an arbitrary convention that people have come to agree on. Well, unless it's like my alphabet and, and I'm God and therefore... <laughs> I'll leave that between you and your students. <laughs> okay, so let's, let's get back to our topic of the yeah. day, the, the so-called TH sounds um, that uh, are represented in the International Phonetic Alphabet by first a theta symbol, which is sort of looks like a, a zero with a bar going across yeah. it, and the EV symbol. Uh, which I think teaching people to learn how to draw that is often a, a tricky thing. It's sort of a backward six, yeah. which is barred as if it was making an X uh, up top. Um, uh, that, that, that's a tricky symbol. Um, uh, now, Phil, do you know the story of, of the evolution of the spelling of TH for these sounds? Yeah, it's, uh, it's actually a little bit complicated in English in that uh, we... we English speakers, I suppose, Old English, uh, had two different symbols. Uh, the thorn, which sort of looks like a C and a long line. Uh, in fact, you could use it, and you may see it in emoticons as the sticking out the tongue uh, symbol. It's actually in Unicode, Unicode keyboards. Uh, I can't mm. remember what the, how to execute it, but... People sometimes use that in their uh, emoticons. 
either to make a little tongue sticking out or a little hat on a man. Mm. And uh, so you can imagine then what it looks like. It's a straight line on the left with a little circle or a little half circle attached to it. In so a backwards. Uh, uh, yes, is that right? yes, indeed, indeed. Uh, the other symbol is the F that you've already described, which uh, you could think of as a backward six with a bar, or you could think of it as a kind of a D with a cross through it. So those two symbols were used interchangeably in Old English. The pronunciation varied a little bit, but for the most part, in initial positions, the unvoiced form was used. So people would say this and that rather than this and that. In medial positions, uh, you had more of a the sound, and therefore we could use the reversed six, the ev symbol for that. Brother is an example. Uh, so both and brother would be distinguished because the unvoiced th sound comes at the end. So those two symbols were used, and they slowly got faded out of English and were replaced by this digraph. Digraph just means two writings, th. That was used in English writing as early as the 8th century, apparently. Uh, and some people have said that it comes to us from Irish. That kind of makes some sense. Lots of things come to us from Irish script, uh, including the library at Alexandria and other things that Irish people have saved for civilization. But I digress. The symbols did eventually fade out, and they got replaced with this TH. And you mentioned to me earlier, Eric, that you had a suggestion that that was because of the printing press. Hmm. Yeah, that, the, that there were just fewer pieces of lead if you didn't have to have a thorn and an ev in your batch of chunks of lead to s write out the text. It, it's easier, so... That makes a lot of sense. And uh, I do think that at times when they were running out of space and they wanted to write TH and didn't have room, instead of using a thorn, they cheated and used a Y. And so we get ye olde shoppy, uh, which is really just the old shop. And in fact, the symbol for the thorn, you could imagine the shape of that backward C part of it morphing and bending a little bit and turning into a Y-like shape. And so... The handwritten form of the thorn looked like a big Y. The two symbols morphed together, and and therefore people misread that spelling as a Y sound, which is fascinating to me that Ye Olde Shopi never was Ye Olde Shopi. It was the Old Shopi. In fact, it was Fe Old Shopi. Fe. That process of changing pronunciation, the variability of pronunciation probably has probably led to the very clever notion of just using a T and an H to mean both of them, so that you don't mm -hmm. have to commit yourself to which sound you mean. Uh, right. Since it's one of them. And in, in different dialects, the, we'd have different options. Yeah. And now you were also saying that in some instances that TH was representing Vs and Fs. Yeah, that was something that I, I ran across, that when TH came into English... It was used to represent th, the, the, and z, I believe, if I've got that right. Now, it makes a little bit of sense. They're all fricatives. They're all voiced fricatives. Uh, actually, the th is not. So the th was being used to represent a kind of range of similarly pronounced sounds. Uh, 
which again is a sort of convenient way of saying it's one of them. And as you suggest, mm -hmm. it may indicate that there was a lot of variability in pronunciation of all of those sounds. It reminds me a little bit about uh, um, Proto-Indo-European, and if we look at things like a name like father, a word like father, that we go back through other languages, the source languages, we get lots of front consonants um, that are similar, you know, words like pater, uh, uh, per, um, uh, that, you know, a p-like sound that turns into a fa-the in English, um, that uh, are different sounds in other European languages, and that uh, as the sort of the tree of language spread from India across Europe to, to the various uh, outposts as far away as, as Great Britain, um, we get s subtle shiftings in each one, yeah. and uh, that ultimately those, those root sounds uh, evolve as uh, sounds that uh, are idiosyncratic to the different regions and social groups. Um, but if we think of uh, the TH sound of uh, a word like mother and brother um, and compare that to pronunciations in places like London where they might have said mava and brava, mm -hmm. uh, who's to say that that evolution of the pr pronunciation was uh, one of them evolved to be perceived as the right one and one of them was perceived as the substandard one, the regional variant, and uh, uh, one of them got written down uh, <laughs> and made official, and the other one got stigmatized. Well, and uh, which, which one of them had the army, I guess, <laughs> yes. we go back to that. Well, it's interesting that uh, the German word Bruder, uh, brother Bruder, the D, the, there, we can recognize that that's essentially the same word, the same sound, and the English version you could say, has the lazier articulation. It mm. doesn't come to a full closure, and it's soft and frictiony. And so you could call the English version of that word the lazy or the degenerate version, but I think we'd probably reject that pretty quickly. And the same reason we should reject, saying that brava is a lazy or relaxed, it's just a a different variation and a normal process of language change. Yeah, Try, we're trying to leave that judgment call yeah. on, on sound change out of it because ultimately just because you say it differently from me doesn't make me or you lazy. Yeah. Sometimes one can argue efficiency, that, uh, that it's evolving towards something where there's a little bit less effort involved and so I'm cutting a corner but uh, on a, a the sound, I have to stick my tongue out further. So I, I don't see how that's more efficient. Yeah, uh, indeed. Uh, efficiency is measured by communication. Did you do the job you needed to do? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, let's, let's move on here. Um, it's interesting to notice that the the sound is uh, uh, not just in English, but it's not in a lot of languages. Uh, and as a result, when we are dealing with accents of e English from speakers for whom English isn't their first language, frequently we're dealing with versions of the TH pronunciation because they didn't learn one in their native language. So how many languages have TH or have TH and the? Well, I, I tried to figure that out through walls dot 
uh, O-R-G, um, and uh, that's the World Atlas of... Language Structure, I think. Okay. Um, and uh, I found one of their maps, the presence of uncommon consonants, and was able to get it to map all the languages that have THs in it, and it came up with 40 splotches on the map. And that's out of over 200, yeah? Yes, yes. I think closer to 250. Yeah. Uh, many of those languages are, uh, you know, indigenous American accent, uh, languages. So uh, they might not be languages that you and I would be familiar mm-hmm. with. Reading the list of names, I, I was like, oh, well, I've never heard of almost all of these. Um, European languages that we might have heard of include Old English, which is essentially a dead language, uh, I- Icelandic, uh, Faroese, and Elfdalian. I don't know where Elfdalian is no, from, I do you? No, I have no idea. By the way, I've just uh, wandered over to the website. The languages represented on this, on, in this system, the WALS system, are 2,650. Oh, oh just <laughs> off by a factor of 10. <laughs> uh, and so 40, only 40 out of that huge number. That's incredible. Yes, very small percentage. So it'll be likely that uh, uh, somebody speaking a different language than English, they will be unlikely to have a the or a th in their language. The percentages are way off. And certainly when one is in a, a ESL or EFL class, the, typically the teacher is going to have to model making th and the sounds. And that, this brings up an interesting point, is that the, the articulation of the TH is culturally different in different environments. And that is partly to do with what is perceived as culturally appropriate of showing the tongue. Yeah. That, uh, that in some cultures, th is made with a, a lot of tongue showing. Uh, my, my parents came back from a trip to El Salvador and were commenting on just how much their, their uh, El Salvador friends stuck out their tongues when they made their th sounds. Well, you, you bring up an interesting point, too, about our teaching leading to more extension of the tongue, that we're trying to mm. tell people how to do things and trying to show them that it exists, and so we're overextending the tongue, perhaps, uh, at least for English articulation. And I, I looked up in Arthur Lessac's uh, The Use and Training of the Human Voice. He calls the voiced the a clarinet sound, and the unvoiced th, a, a sound effect, a bellows. But in describing it, he, he says, stick your tongue, the rim of the tongue, between the upper and lower teeth, perhaps even more than necessary at first. And he then says, mm. it will relax on its own. So he's quite overtly saying, practice it excessively. Yes. And I, I think that's, I always find that important to talk to my students about so that they don't feel that my modeling of it is the modeling of the correct way. Uh, it's correct if you're El Salvadoran, perhaps, but it's not correct in daily speech in, in American English. However, I, I will say that I see a variation of gender. Hmm. Uh, that Tell me about that. It may be that I have female students who are a subset of actors who are sticking their tongues out more, who are more expressive, 
But it does seem to me that if you watch male and female American speakers using this sound, the females are much more likely to do the sound interdentally, that is to say, with their tongue sticking out past their teeth. Mm. And men seem less likely. Now, I tried to do some research on this, but I didn't find anybody confirming my hypothesis. Right. The only, the only thing I could find was uh, from Sounds of the World's Languages by Madison and Latifoged, where they talk about the difference between Brits and Americans, that U.S. speakers tend to make interdental articulations, whereas British speakers tend to make dental articulations. Um, so uh, basically that there's a little bit more retraction for the, the British speakers. I, I would say that most Canadians are with the Brits, that our, our uh, TH sounds, if you will, are more along the edge of the teeth rather than projecting the tongue interdentally. I'm seeing it variably. That is that Sometimes when people say, that's wonderful, they need to express themselves, and so they get the blade of the tongue on the edge of the teeth and stick the tongue right out there. And acoustically, I'd say there's not much difference. In fact, Mm -hmm. uh, something that I was reading basically said that the realization of TH sounds is so varied because there's nothing interfering with it. There are no other Mm -hmm. consonant sounds really quite near it or like it, so... You could make it interdentally, you could make it further back, and frankly, everybody gets it because it's a pretty big phonemic category with a lot more tolerance for variability. And that's certainly my internal perception. Right. The, the other uh, comment that I got from Sounds of the World's Languages was about Otto Jespersen, that great famous linguist uh, who was very much uh, involved with the original development of the IPA and did a lot of the early studies on uh, Proto-Indo-European, he, su- he suggested that uh, because people have different kinds of teeth with fewer, greater gaps and bumps, and uh, that uh, you, you are likely to have to adjust your tongue position to make a different kind of TH, and that uh, uh, perhaps if you have more gaps, you might have to stick more tongue out to kind of fill in the gaps. Which goes against the general uh, stereotype of American teeth versus English teeth. So uh, I, I don't know if that... Right. Maybe I got that backwards. Maybe it's the Well, other way I think that uh, this is one reason why, for example, no language that I know of has a dental plosive as a, as a phoneme. Because mm. if you have variability in teeth you might have a hard time really closing off and exploding sounds there. Yes. Um, now, do, uh, I do remember making noises to my babies and uh, being m- modeling those sounds very emphatically and tending to stick my tongue out a lot for those sounds. Um, I, I didn't do particularly well because my youngest son has a bit of a speech <laughs> disorder around TH, um, but uh, we can talk a bit about that later. Um, the, uh, but to a certain degree, there is, you know, showing the tongue to help people lip-read you. And I would imagine that the children are more likely to do the tongue-out thing because they're, they're doing lip-reading as well. They're modeling based on what they see as, as well as what they're hearing. Yes. Yes, I would agree. Now, uh, we, you, we should also say that, uh, that the symbols ev and theta are used in other languages yeah. still today that uh, the ev symbol uh, appears in those languages like Icelandic and Faroese. So it, it's part of the uh, 
Unicode fonts as well, not just because of IPA. Both the Thorn and the Ev are, are still used in those, in Icelandic, I, I mm -hmm. certainly know. Uh, and, but Icelandic, does it use a theta, or it uses the thorn to represent the I believe it style. uses the thorn, yes. Um, yeah, but we have theta in Greek. Yeah. Um, that, uh, and they, they have, those languages have capital and lowercase versions of these, whereas the IPA is basically the lowercase yeah. version of I, the theta. I wanted to just bring up uh, something about the writing of these symbols. Uh, mm. Because I run into a lot of variation, and this this is going to be a small digression on how we get into habits about writing these things. I have seen students who have taken phonetics courses before write their theta with a wiggly line in the middle, and on their mm. ev, putting a little serif of sorts on the right-hand side. Of, of the x part. Exactly, exactly. And these are details that don't seem to have come from the history of phonetics. I was looking up some of the cursive forms. It seems to have been developed in American speech classes, frankly. Mm. And those little extras, pretty though they might be, one, don't communicate any new information, and two, don't look like the printed symbol and so could cause confusion. Yeah, that, that, that's part of the uh, suggestions of the handbook of the International Phonetic Association is that we make an effort to draw them similar to the way they appear in print um, and that o the only time one might use a, a serif is to help differentiate symbols that look slightly alike. So, for instance, on the uh sound that you'd have in a word like book, the symbol is a... a it's similar to an upside-down omega. So little hooks on the mm -hmm. top of the, the U shape of it help to differentiate it from a lowercase u. Well, I suppose then that's a good argument for wiggling that line. If that was in the symbol, you'd then know it wasn't a barred O. Mm. We do have to be careful that our symbol isn't short and chubby because there is a symbol which is an O with a bar through it, which is the rounded er, er, er. Uh, I think of it as the Bridget Bardo symbol. Mm -hmm. And that's short. And this one, the theta, is taller. It's an ascender. It goes above the middle dotted line. So ultimately, when we make symbols, it's important that they be unique and not confusable with other symbols. Yeah. Um, but that adding extra wiggly bits may be extra information that we don't really need. Yeah. yeah, I think the, the you know the wiggly bit of the th the theta often comes from the the way we b cross the dark L, and that people yes. start to think that everything that gets crossed in the IPA needs a wiggly crossbar, yeah. um, and uh, so a barred I just really it's like putting a minus sign over top of a barred I, a barred yeah. U, same deal. It, it also strikes me as the equivalent of uh, dotting your eyes with hearts. It's an unnecessary prettiness, uh, and I hate to be a downer, but I would value communication and consistency over prettiness. I'm, it, we're going to get mail on that. <laughs> um, okay, so let's uh, let's leave the symbol shapes. Yes, and. Uh, um, Let's talk a little bit about 
Well, what exactly we're doing in the mouth? Because uh, we've kind of talked around that already without yeah. being, we, you know, what are, what are our fancy names for uh, these symbols? Perfect. So sounds. The sounds. It's not the symbols. It's the fancy names for the sounds. So we know that there's a voiced and an unvoiced form. And we could probably figure out that they're fricatives because there's a sort of chaotic buzzing going on. And so the next part of the description has to be about the place. So these are called dental fricatives, the voiced and unvoiced dental fricatives. Although some people call them interdental fricatives, which we've alluded to before. So to me, the, the business end of it, the place where the rubber hits the road, where the flesh hits the enamel, is at the cutting part of the front teeth. So just that front edge that you could feel with your tongue, some part of your tongue gets close enough to that so that there's a sort of wide slit of turbulent air rolling through there. You could do that by sticking your tongue further out, if we, as we said. And uh, why don't I make the two? I'll make an interdental and a dental, and we'll see if our listeners can hear the difference. So mm. think, 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 think. It feels very different to me, but I mm. suspect it's the only difference is how hard it is for me to get my tongue back into my mouth to do the next sound. Right. And if one's unfamiliar, that'll slow you down. Yeah. So are you going to reveal to the audience which one was which? Ah, the first or one. only your, your hairdresser knows. <laughs> exactly. The, uh, the first one was interdental, and the second one was dental. I think it's possible that you could tell the difference. I usually am telling my students that they ought to practice doing the dental one, and I give reasons of efficiency that we've already said for, for doing that, that we don't gain much by sticking the tongue out, although... If I have a group of students and the, the men are scoffing at the tongue extension, I make sure everybody practices it so that they can right. get good at doing that. Well, that's a good theory, good approach. Okay, uh, we are at the place where we need to talk a little bit about uh, other interesting tidbits about TH and, and where that shows up in uh, languages of the world. Yeah. And uh, I, I had an awkward moment this uh, fall when I was teaching where I trotted out the urban legend of Spanish having th in its speech as a, um, uh, a hyper-prestigious use that this, uh, this unknown Spanish king had a lisp and so everybody copied <laughs> him. And uh, one of my students said, that's an urban legend. And I said... What? And he told me how it was an urban legend, and I went, wow, okay, uh, I will check that up. And, of course, he was right. Uh, of course he was right. I love having brave students. I, I do, too. I really I uh, praised him and encouraged him and told him that was a good thing that he told me that and uh, that I'm not embarrassed to, to be made a fool of in class. Um, yes. And that, you know, I'm trying to remember stuff, and good, good, good for him for catching me yeah. out. Um, so the the backstory of it is that in certain versions of Spanish, they have a a, two, a variety of sounds, uh, a distinction between uh, a s sound, an s sound, and a th sound, the voiceless dental fricative. Uh, 
This is known in Spanish as distinción, uh, and in some places, uh, the word casa, C-A-S-A, which means the house, it can be contrasted with the word casa. Uh, uh, well, I'm saying that with a very English pronunciation, <laughs> C-A-Z-A. Uh, so casa, house, with an S, and caza for the hunt, C-A-Z-A. Uh, that's for versions of Spanish that separate them. Then there's two versions where they're the same, uh, but different from one another. One version called ceceo says la caza and la caza. They're both said with the theta sound. And then there's another version called ceceo where they say la casa and la casa. So uh, those evolve differently over history. And, um, and those are C's and Z's in medial and final positions, n not the initial position. Okay. Uh, you know more about Spanish well, than I. I'm just saying that the variation is about the vowel that comes after it because, of course, we wouldn't say sasa. We'd say casa. So it has a, a plosive form, whereas you're right that cesio, I'm pretty sure it's because it's followed by an E, has that s-ish sound. That's much like it happens in English. There's another version of this distinction that I heard as a joke in the Spanish class. Uh, casar, I believe with an S, is to, be, to marry. So casado is married, and casado is hunted. Uh, mm. So you could say, estás casado o casado? Are you married or hunted? Uh, and so there's an amusing little punish distinction there. But it occurs to me now, because this is new information to me, that for some people that's a joke, and for some people that's meaningless. There's no pun there. Uh, if you say, estás casado o casado, or casado o casado, there's no joke. <laughs> there's no difference there. That distinction, which I too had been over-applying, I was under the impression that in Castilian Spanish, there was only the distinción, not the ceceo or ceceo versions. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure w what regions of Spain keep it. If, if one looks online, I, I, there are maps available that show you how much of, of Spain has the dis distinción and what regions have ceceo and which regions have ceceo. Um, so I, I th it's, it's an interesting aspect for we non-Spanish speakers to just be aware of, I think. Yeah, I ran into a person, a, a Catalan speaker, which is a, a language that is spoken in Spain, who introduced herself and said she was from Barcelona. And it really took me a moment because if you're a Castilian Spanish speaker from Barcelona, you'd say Barcelona. So she clearly did not make that distinction because of her Catalan background. Uh, mm. You learn something new every day. Right. So, uh, in English, though, there are variations on this th sound that different English speakers yeah. do different versions, and also people for whom their their language of origin does not include a th, they often will substitute something else. So we we are often encountering different versions of sounds in the place of the th or the sound, mm -hmm. and. Perhaps one of the more famous 
distinctions, well, around in my neck of the woods, coming from Canada, where we have French a lot. We have Quebecois French speaking English, and they will replace the and the with ta and da. So we get this, then, there, those things. Um, uh, and that is in contrast to most Parisian French speakers speaking English who are likely to use sa and za. So we get this and that, those things. Um, and that that is a fairly um, strong difference between those two versions of French when they speak English. And there'll, there'll be a lot of variety simply because what's happening in accents is that a foreign speaker is trying to speak English properly or according to its rules, but they're doing it with the phonological system of their own language. So I might, if I were trying to speak Czech, not succeed at saying cielo or jelo, which has a weird initial consonant, and I would do something different, something as close as I could get it, but they would definitely know that I had an American English accent in my Czech speaking. I, I, I think it partly goes to that thing you call oral posture, the way you hold your mouth and uh, the, the comfort zone of where your tongue sits in your mouth. Uh, for ta and da, which in Quebecois, in, in French, is dentalized, it's on the back of the teeth, it feels quite close mm-hmm. to the place where tha and the would be. Um, so it, it, it feels to th- uh, those speakers that it's, it's fairly close. Um, uh, and I, I love to hear Quebecois speaker uh, trying so hard to get their thas and thas in place that they hypercorrect. And mm. I was in a situation where someone was telling me about a duck and they called it a thuck. Yeah, that's true. Um, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm sure it was very frustrating for, uh, he was saying, those thucks. <laughs> so he was getting both wrong. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, that, that basically the, the voice inside your head uh, is saying, it's a D. I don't know what it's supposed to be, a D, T, H. It's They're one all of them. the same to me. Crazy English and, speakers. And so they just randomly scatter uh, those sounds around. So would you say that then a Parisian French speaker doesn't have the dental quality on their d, so the feature that they're attentive to is the fricative nature, and so they use a s and a z because it feels more like the sound they're hearing in English? I, I, it's hard for me to say. I think that there's also something a bit more percussive about the nature of uh, French-Canadian French, whereas uh, there is more of a fluid quality, a more legato style to Parisian French. And so perhaps that might also be something to do with it. And again, we we can't really codify this because it's each individual speaker who's making their choices. Though one can say that generally, uh, I can say flat out that I've never heard a Quebecois speaker say this and that. Yeah. They all would say this and that. Uh, and it is less common for a Parisian French speaker to say this and that, but not impossible. It is, it is possible that Parisian French speakers will use this and that. There, there's another thing at work here, and that is that the Quebecois speakers are around English more. So They are. Uh, so they're in a community of people who are speaking English with that accent. So there's a dialect 
forming, just like Irish English is a, a dialect, a, a group of people speaking English in a particular way. Whereas there isn't so much the focused community of Parisian French speakers of English. Does that make sense? Mm. Yes, I think that is true. Yep. Uh, there's a huge amount of English in Quebecois French, um, you know, uh, but that can also be said about Parisian French, you know, le parking yeah. and uh, le sweater. There's lots of uh, 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 le pull, sorry, that's the word I was looking for, le pull for a pullover hmm. um, in Parisian French. So uh, there is a, a lot of crossover, but it it's crossover from English English rather than uh, Canadian English, and perhaps that makes a difference. Perhaps. So other other versions, uh, uh, there's a, a thing that linguists call TH fronting. Would you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Please? So what's in front of the the position? Well, the only thing that's in front of your teeth is your lips. And so the fronting is the fronting of the place of articulation. So instead of think, we get think. Instead of brother, we get brava. It's very common, and it's, I'd say it's not just in London that you get TH fronting in final positions, uh, like the actor Will Smith, you might say mouth. Although the same speaker of African-American vernacular English might say, I hit Will Smith in the mouth, but they would not say these or those. Uh, they wouldn't say, I think I'll hit Will Smith. They'd say, I think I'll hit Will Smith. So we could say, I've certainly said this before, that in Cockney speech, that fronting is because of a general tongue retraction and the, the fact that the tongue is otherwise engaged, so that it has a hard time reaching forward for that TH, for that dental position. Hmm. And so a different fricative which is in a front position and sounds very much alike, is substituted. So think. And in fact, for our podcast listeners, it, it might be difficult to hear, perhaps. I think I'll go to the theater. I think I'll go to the theater. That's not a big difference, acoustically no. speaking. Um, now, the, the, I think the interesting thing for me about working with actors on something like Cockney is to realize that uh, a working-class London speaker isn't going to front all their THs. Yeah. That many of the TH sounds are going to be realized as Ts and Ds, particularly in those function words, the little words, the those, them, they, those are likely to be D. Um, and yeah. that often is a real indicator of somebody who doesn't know what they're doing if they're saying they are going uh, in an instance, particularly when they're speaking quickly. You could say that this variability is variability based on ease. It's based on stress. It's based on position in the word, which is exactly how those th sounds in Old English vary their way towards a voiced form. There was already a process of th becoming the, and that same process is at work. It's the process of being able to speak English comfortably. And so it's uncomfortable to say, they were going, it's much easier to say they were going. And I find that oftentimes there's, because there's nasalization in the accent, there's a little bit of, there's a stop, but there's some flow through the nose. So they were going. Hmm. 
I think that you could probably fit that into speech and nobody would really notice it. I frankly think we do that in American English as well, certainly in nasal contexts. So when they... When they... Yeah, we all... Everybody says, when they go... Sure, but that that's generally dropping THs because, you know, uh, give them give a hand. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we, they were going to drop those THs... That that's another thing to to remind people who are working on a working class London accent is if you can drop those weak ths, do so because that that's also appropriate. It's like we've said in a lot of places, it's a process of lenition. It's a process of how things get lightened. And in speech, things are variably fortified and lenited. <laughs> Weakened. That's a much better word. <laughs> Um, the the other thing we haven't talked about is uh, how it bec- becomes an H in some, particularly the Glasgow form of Scots yeah. English or Scottish English. Um, can you do that? Uh, yeah, so the word three, free. Free. It's interesting that the term for that free. is debuckalization, which I really only learned when researching for this. It's a weird word. It really means things not being articulated with the front of the mouth. Uh, buckle really refers to the cheeks, and you brought up the association with the French word for mouth, bouche. It's a process of lightening that changes things towards H's, I think is what we could agree on. And I, I think the debuckalization is because the IPA calls H a glottal consonant, yeah. and so... It's taking it out of the mouth and putting it in the larynx. Uh, ironically, H is actually made wherever the sound that follows is articulated. Yeah. So it, it is still an oral sound. Uh, if you say free, it's essentially uh, a voiceless R, free. And that is uh, a sound that's not that far away from a th sound. You know, there's another thing happening in Glasgow I was reading that there's also the spreading of the TH fronting. So you might get somebody saying three, free, or free, even the same speaker. Uh, yes. And again, that's that variable realization is, is about how the oral posture is shifting, I would say. It's what's mm-hmm. easy to do and what's not easy to do. Uh, we talked about the stopping... When I talked about the Quebecois, yes. But there's also a a pretty complex stopping of THs in Irish English, in Hiberno-English. You could get a full-on tink. I don't think that they were them. Or you could get a version that is sort of halfway in between those, yes? Yes, I think that's a good way of of pitching that to (laughs) someone who's learning it. It's not quite tha and it's not quite ta. What if you split the difference? And and really, it's about the retraction of placement of a particular kind of spread articulation. There's probably a lot to unpack in that. When I make a th sound, it's not just that I'm making it against the teeth. It's that I'm making it with a pretty wide tongue. And if I move that articulation back, I get I get a spread sound. And if I were to bring that articulation back and groove it, I'd get that No Irishman is really going to say, I think that those were them. 
they're yeah. going to do something that's one, stopped, and two, pretty spread. And perhaps even with the blade of the tongue. Tink, tink. So if I say tink, I really could get the tip of my tongue on my teeth. But mm-hmm. the real closure is happening with the blade of my tongue against the alveolar ridge. I, I have this very technical term for that. Is you basically, you put the front edge of your tongue on the edge of your teeth like you're doing that dental articulation of th, and then you, here's the technical term, smoosh your tongue <laughs> into the sort of corner of behind your upper front teeth uh, where your teeth and your gum meets. If you smoosh the blade of your tongue in there, you're going to get that t kind of sound. And uh, stu- my students seem to love that term, s- the smooshed th. Well, you know, if you're, if, if you're making the articulation where the closure happens for that th, and then you're, we could think about the, this whole effect as being just a fronter tongue position, but without the tip moving any further forward. So it does smush, and the blade of the tongue gets mushed up against the alveolar ridge, and that's what's making it into a stop. It, it, it works for me, and people seem to understand what I'm talking about when I say smoosh it, and uh, <laughs> that ultimately, if, I, if they are able to make the sound that I'm, I'm asking of them, um, when I use that term, that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, there, it's important to, for us to remember that not all people in Ireland will do that um, kind of TH that parts of Dublin will definitely use a T and a da instead of, of a TH sound. Um, and so we, there's variability. You can't make a single judgment about a whole country about the way they speak <laughs> it. If you want to find more detailed uh, breakdowns of how Irish people tend to do this, Raymond Hickey has a terrific website which is called The Phonology of Irish English. And he breaks down pretty definitively, I guess I'd have to say, the variation in, in pronunciation between rural northern Irish, popular Dublin Irish, fashionable Dublin, rural southwest and west, and supra-regional southern. And he'll, if you look into the parts of his site around uh, uh, urban Irish, he'll further break down versions of Dublin for you. So it's a, a very handy site. Um, his, his work on Irish English has been fantastically helpful to coaches. Th- there's an overlap in, in Irish English that uh, I'm now reminded of, and that is when medial T sounds, and we talked about this in the Tada episode, when those become more fricative-ish, so water, so you might say, I think I'll have some water, and there's a merging of those two, what for us would be separate phonemes, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely, that, that those two groups essentially become one. Yeah. Um, so if we can think of an example where there's a word with uh, th in the, uh, you know, like... Uh, well, the I'm trying to think of an example with a th in the middle. Uh, the, the one that I think of is like uh, Walter has a Walther PP7. Is that the name of that gun? I don't know. I watch too much Law & Order. <laughs> I think it's German, and so it's pronounced <laughs> Walter. All right, well, then that's no good. Uh, and all the medial uh, THs I can think of are voiced, so... But what a, and it has to be it has to be medial. It can't be final. It can't say Pat walked down oh, the path. Oh, so Betty is breathy. Uh, Be- Betty is breathy. Breathy. Betty is breathy. breathy. I think that there's a distinction there. 
it doesn't feel right yeah. to completely merge them. Uh, I might need to go find some samples. Well, we could have more on this in an f- upcoming <laughs> yes. episode of Glossonomia. Um, okay. Um, now, in, in uh, looking at Wikipedia to look at this stuff, I noticed a couple of things on each of these sounds, uh, the, the voiced and the voiceless one, talking about Icelandic and Danish versions of the that are retracted. And it described these things as non-sibilant fricative allophones that are made in the alveolar place. Now, remember that alveolar fricatives in English are sa and za, and they're sibilant, the, the sibilant meaning hissy uh, uh, versions. And um, so basically they're tha and the, they sound like tha and the to a certain degree, but with the tongue retracted further back, so we get tha and the made on the gum ridge. So this is the um, same distinction we were just talking about. Yes, the difference between sibilance mm. and non-sibilance is not about placement, but about the nature of the constriction. Uh, that right. uh, s and z are not just s and z because they're on the alveolar ridge, but because I'm doing something else to groove the tongue to make a tighter little passageway. And, and there's another component. Yeah. Another component, that groove aims the turbulent air at the hard surface of the teeth, yeah. or at least the, the gum ridge where it meets the teeth, and that is ultimately what makes that high-pitched hiss. And if you look at people with a very high-pitched hissy sound, they're aligning their teeth in such a way to make mm. that as loud and high-pitched as possible. Um, if, if you can make a non-sibilant uh, alveolar fricative, you're doing it in such a way as that the constriction is just at the gum ridge and there's the turbulence isn't bumping into the teeth so much. And the only way to do that is to make sure your teeth are far enough apart. So we would expect if we saw these Icelandic speakers that they wouldn't be closing their teeth on those sounds. Yes, that there would actually be a, a bit of a gap between their upper and lower teeth so that they could make that th and th not sound like sound. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought of it that way. So you have a little thing on speech disorders here. Yes, I do. And the notion of lisp, really. And I think that that's one that we might want to save some of that for our discussion of s and z in a future episode. Sure. Uh, But certainly there's a a realization of s and z that's close to th and the, yes? Yes, absolutely, and that, uh, you know, immortalized by uh, Henry Fonda in On Golden Pond, Ethel Thayer sounds like I'm lisping. <laughs> um, that, that TH uh, substitution yeah. for S and Z. Um, and, uh, you know, speech disorders are um, problems that uh, typically are addressed by speech-language pathologists, with children, though that they can linger into later life. Um, and uh, th- they are, of course, very challenging. And today, actors are very rarely permitted to use lisps, uh, particularly it's politically incorrect for comedians to use mm-hmm. lisps. There is a, a, a comic out of Newfoundland uh, who uh, she actually appeared on um, that, uh, you know, comic search show. Do you remember what that show's called? Uh, It's a reality show about being a 
comic. Uh, last one standing? Last comic standing, yes, I think that's it. And uh, uh, she, she uses her own natural lisp in, in her, her comedy. She says something, uh, uh, have you noticed something about my speech? And uh, yes, I've got a lisp. And really plays it up to the, the nth degree. She's allowed to do that because that's her thing. But nobody else gets away with it like Mel Blanc did back in the battle days. Yeah, it's interesting. And it, it has to do with the cultural ideas we have associated with it. But let's save that for se- and se. Yeah. I think that might conclude. Oh, there was one last thing that is on a little sticky post-it in my brain. And that is sometimes the spelling of the and the uh, in Welsh, the is spelled with a double D. Uh, Mm -hmm. So the name David, spelled D-A-F-Y-D-D, has a the sound. Or the actor Ewan Griffith, his last name is spelled G-R-U-F-F-U-D-D, Griffith. So that's the the source of much confusion for people trying to read Welsh. Uh, they do have a th, however, a, a digraph t and h for the th sound. But for the, hmm. it's double d. Double d. And occasionally you'll see people write dh as a way of indicating the the sound. Yeah. Uh, but it's another sort of way of transliterating uh, phonetics into... Uh, 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 something for s- people who don't read IPA. It does make a little sense. Um, I, yeah, it does. And in English, uh, I think there is uh, the challenge, particularly for second language learners, of, of learning to identify how to use the voiced the on verbs where the cognate pair is voiceless, so breath and breathe. Well, and I think that there are some uh, words that are uh, more obscure that our... Young actors don't know. So he wreathed his arms around, or I'm loath to tell you uh, that I loathe you. That distinction between the verb form and the noun form, or adjective form, is sometimes indicated with spelling. So uh, yes. loathe has an E at the end, but loath doesn't. Right. Breathe, the verb breathe has an E on the end. Unfortunately, the verb mouth, <laughs> I, I believe it does not have exactly. any on the end. So uh, mouthed uh, works. But I, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see somebody pick up uh, the word, to read the word mouthed as mouthed. And yes. I, I've her- heard students, the, the other place where the unvoiced voice distinction happens, as we alluded to in the development of English, is in medial positions, in the middle of a word, between two vowels, there's often the voiced form. And so, I know my worth, I'm worthy. I've had a surprising number of people pronounce that as worthy. Mm -hmm. That is surprising. And I think it's because they might not be too familiar with that word, which is a little frightening to contemplate. They've got very low low (laughs) self-worth. Yes. Well, and that violates our sense of, of... phonotactics, it's, it's odd for the to happen at the end of a word. That isn't a verb. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And the, and the spelling sometimes indicates that. 
But in middle positions, we have a distinction. So north is unvoiced, but northern is is voiced. I was thinking of another one that isn't quite accurate, which is both and bother, even though those words have separate origins. Uh, the both form is unvoiced and bother is voiced. Right. Um, now, bringing up the word both, um, there is a, an epenthetic L that creeps in on both in some people's pronunciation. And uh, I wondered whether you had any theorizing around why that L might be I think it has in. more to do with the vowel because uh, right. the back of the tongue in the L sound is in a position very similar to the O, and so we might hear an L-ish quality. Certainly, I grew up pronouncing the L in palm right. or calm. Uh, even when I didn't do it with the tongue tip raised, I did it with the back of the tongue calm. And so, yeah, both is close. The tongue position, both, both. Even if I don't lift my tongue, I'm getting something close to an L. Yes. So if you're taking a, your trajectory to the TH goes via the land of L, we hear an L, even though you're not intending to put an L. I suspect that many people who say both don't hear an L in it. Yeah. And, and I'm trying to think of a word that doesn't start with that O vowel. So if they were to say the word, if somebody who said both with an L said the word heath, they wouldn't say heath. Uh, they wouldn't right. be tempted to lift the tongue tip because of the TH, They'd, because their tongue body isn't in the position that's equivalent. So it's the O of both that's getting people into that L-ish place. Mm. I, I wish that I could come up with a couple of more examples, but my, my sense is that it's more about the vowel than about the following consonant. Makes sense. Makes sense. The other th instance where a lot of thus come up are on, um, I'm forgetting, what, are they called ordinal numbers when you have fifth, sixth, uh, yes. seventh? Cardinal is one, two, three. Ordinal is first, second, because it's the order. Right. Um, and uh, frequently, people will talk about the tendency to drop sounds before the yeah. th. So a word like fifth is often pronounced fifth. Yeah, right? absolutely. That, that, again, it's a shortcut. And the opposite is true in a word like clothes. People very frequently don't get the the in the before going to the z. In fact, uh, I opened up a new... Uh, usage dictionary that had been recommended to me and looked up the word clothes and it said that the only appropriate pronunciation was the one without the the in it, which right. shook me slightly. Um, so even in careful speech, I've got my best clothes yep. on, not my best clothes. Exactly. Uh, it, the, whoever this was, I can't remember the name, was saying that they were homophones. Uh, and that's the way language changes. I'm still going to hang on to my dinosaur pronunciation of clothes when I'm being careful. Right. But it is really a careful pronunciation for you, right? You have to really think about Absolutely. it to get that in. And I'm, I will certainly ask my students to be as effective in doing that articulation as possible, but it's not because I feel that it's somehow right for them to do it all the time. It's that I want them to be able to produce that level of detailed articulation 
without stopping the right. train. And I just noticed you saying without with a voiced th. Uh, and that's true. Uh, many students will say without and within. I'd say my pronunciation of without is an affectation because I certainly grew up saying without. There's when that word. Me too, by the way. Me yeah, too. Yeah, it's a sort of anglophilic thing, I think. Speaking of which, I think there is variability in English speech, in British speech, uh, that before an unvoiced consonant, you might say with Susan, with Tony, but with everybody. I'm mm. pretty certain that that's variably voiced. Right. So the, what you're doing there is you're anticipating the voiced sound that yeah, follows. exactly. But if it, in a final position, I would probably voice it if I were speaking RP. Uh, who you're coming with, I'm with Tony. Right. Uh, great. Okay. Well, I think we have kind of hammered TH <laughs> into the ground here. Um, at least uh, we've we've had some fun playing around with Indeed. the, the and sounds it, for a while. Any omissions or mistakes, I'm sure we'll be getting emails about that. Yes, or comments by voice. So uh, we would appreciate your participation in this, and uh, if you can bring yourself to make a comment or remind us of something we've missed, or ask a question, we'd be very happy to to participate. And you don't have to appear on the show if you want to make a comment and say, please, please don't put this into the show. You can also do that, too. Great. Okay. Um, reminding people that you can send us email to glossonomia at gmail.com. And we also appreciate it if people make reviews on the iTunes store. Uh, search for Glossonomia in iTunes, and you'll come to our podcast page, and you can use the Make a Review button to add your comments about the show. And we did get a comment, actually. Yay! Parkles, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. It could be Parkless. <laughs> That's a subject um, for another podcast, the, I think. Yes. Um, uh, interestingly enough, I could only see that on iTunes uh, Preview on the web, that uh, there are two kinds of iTunes now. There's iTunes, the application and iTunes preview, that if you type in an iTunes link, it'll take you to an iTunes page in your web browser, and then following any link on that page will actually take you into iTunes. And uh, um, I couldn't get to the review on, uh, on the application. Maybe there's something special about my application. I think it must be. Yes. Okay, well, I think we're done here, and next week we'll be back with a vowel sound. Do you remember what yes. we're doing next week? I've, we're doing an interesting variation, which is the central vowels not dealt with in the schwa episode. Ah. Uh, so we'll be dealing with the phonemic concept, but also a lot of the details of realization, and we'll get into some of those funny little symbols around the middle of the vowel chart. Right. Excellent. Well, it's been a pleasure as always. Likewise. Uh, talk to you again next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.